we look at American history, particularly with regards to war and our involvement in international war, we tend to rely on corporate memory. For example, World War I. If you ask most Americans today whether World War I was a good war or a bad war or a bad thing for America, most people are going to say it's a good thing. It was a good thing. Most people are going to say, if they know anything at all about it, you know, arsenal of democracy, we, we had to go save Europe from the Hun, that sort of thing. There's never any question about World War I, was it worth it? Nobody ever asks that. It's assumed that the sacrifices that we make, made in 1917 and 1918 were worth it because we preserved democracy for the world. Here in my town of Silverdale, Washington, we have a very small monument. It's, it's almost hard to read, dedicated to the memory of the men that this town lost during the First World War. When it comes to the Second World War, almost no one even contemplates the question was it worth it? The corporate understanding we have of the Second World War is such that it was, as Studs Terkel wrote, the good war. It was worth it because we had to destroy Nazism and fascism and imperialism, and we had to save the world from evil. And so all of the sacrifices that were made for the Second World War were clearly worth it. In fact, Studs Terkel would write his book called The Good War in 1984. It's a classic of American literature. If you haven't read it, you probably should if you have any interest in it at all. And even if you don't, it's an important look at it, – it's an oral history. So he interviewed people. He talked to people and he told – he let them tell their stories. And so it's people that were there that saw it, that understood it, what was going on. They, you, 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 you were getting eyewitnessing, eyewitness – information there. Uh, it's, I highly recommend that you read it. I haven't read it in probably 20 years. I don't even know if I still have my copy of it. I'm, I'm going to have to go download and read it again. It is a fascinating book. But again, no one ever asks the question, was the Second World War worth it? Nobody ever asked, was World War I worth it? Almost no one asks that about the Spanish-American War or the Civil War, even the Korean War, which we don't talk about. It's called the Forgotten War for a reason. Very few people will ask the question, was the Korean War worth it? We understand the world today and we see the world today and South Korea was saved from a communist dictatorship and is one of the most prosperous nations in the world. How much of the equipment that we all use every day comes from Korea, South Korea. The prosperity and economy of South Korea, was that worth it? Was the sacrifice we made in Korea from 1950 to 1953, was it worth it? I imagine most South Koreans would say yes. And even with what we've seen over the past three or four years with North Korea, it kind of plays into that, doesn't it? The real questions began about was it worth it with Vietnam. And the problem with Vietnam, and I'm not here to rehash the entire history of Vietnam. If you're going to send me emails saying, but Dave, what about this? 
we believe me, I can have those discussions if you want, but I'm, this is more of a macro view of things. The Vietnam war had been going on for years before the United States ever got involved. You know that, right? In 1945, when Vietnam declared its independence, the speaker that day quoted Thomas Jefferson told American representatives that were there, we like you. We want to be like you. And for some reason, the United States just didn't pay a whole lot of attention. And when France, defeated in the Second World War by the Nazis, resurrected by the United States, said, hey, we want our colonies back. And one of those colonies is Indochina, Vietnam. Uh, we just sort of said, you know, not our problem, not our business. Over the years of that fight between France and Vietnam, we poured millions, do you understand this? Millions of dollars into France to defeat Vietnam. And it all went bust. Vietnam lost. Or, I'm sorry, France lost to Vietnam. And for some reason, with the split of Vietnam in the North and South, we decided that we had to get involved. Now, you can argue that it was an honorable beginning. You can argue that it was the military industrial complex. This, that's beyond the scope of where we are today. It's beyond the scope of what I want to talk about right now. Whether you believe that the Vietnam War had an honorable beginning or a nefarious beginning really doesn't matter. The vast majority of the American public believed that it needed to be done. And we sent men, materials, and money to Vietnam in the form of our army, our navy, our air force, our marines, our coast guard, our weapons, our foreign aid to Indochina, where I don't think anybody to this day knows exactly what the mission was supposed to be. Was the mission... Vietnamization, in other words, training the Vietnamese so that they could defend themselves, was the mission simply to defend South Vietnam from North Vietnam? Was the mission to conquer North Vietnam? And over the course of the time that we were there, the eight, nine, 10 years we were there, involved, 65 to 73, the actual war, no one really ever defined exactly what the mission was specifically supposed to be? What was the strategic goal other than to stop South Vietnam from falling to the communists in the domino effect? And over time, the American public lost confidence in the leadership of our country with regards to what exactly are we doing here? Why are we sacrificing these men, this money, these materials? What are we doing and whether you think it was Walter Cronkite or the Tet Offensive or whatever, really doesn't matter. The loss of confidence was palpable. I was there. I felt it. I was a kid, but I, even I understood it. And to this day, no one can answer exactly what we were trying to accomplish. The military performed brilliantly. Don't misunderstand me. There were brilliant moments for the United States military in all phases of the game, air, sea, land, command, it didn't matter. To say that the military lost the war would be incorrect and inaccurate. 
the military didn't really know what it was supposed to be doing, so it did what it could and what it thought it was supposed to be doing. But the problem was there was no mission. There was a loss of mission, a loss of confidence, and ultimately the American people decided that they'd had enough. Did we lose the Vietnam War? That's a subjective thing. If you take the argument that our purpose was to protect South Vietnam from North Vietnam, when we left, South Vietnam was still there. Did we lose? Ultimately, with what happened, many people would argue that we did. I don't know. It's hard to say militarily. It's hard to say with South Vietnam and its corrupt governments and its inability to inspire its own people the way that the North did, so forth and so on. It's hard to say we lost it. But the war, the Vietnam War, the side we backed, both France and South Vietnam, lost. And we sacrificed a lot of people for that. Was it worth it? Was what we did in Vietnam worth the cost? By the time we got to the second Iraqi war, 2003, there were a lot of questions. Is this an honorable beginning? In other words, do we really need to go in here or is this once again the military industrial complex? And depending on what you believe of that says more about your politics than it does anything else. If you recall, this was about WMDs. Saddam Hussein has WMDs, weapons of mass destruction. I'm always bemused. Most of you know my background. If you don't, you can look it up. It's on my webpage. Most Americans wouldn't, most American journalists wouldn't know a weapon of mass destruction if you reached out and bapped them upside the head with one. So when the media says, there were no WMDs, I kind of, I scoff at that for a couple of reasons. One, we know that there were. I mean, it's not a question of what we said to the United Nations or this, that. Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. For God's sakes, he used them on his own people. We know that. We reported it. We watched it on our own news. Did they have nuclear weapons? Sorry, nuclear weapons? Probably not. But there's a lot more to WMDs than just nukes, folks. At any rate, we went in there and in what can only be described as a brilliant military campaign, <laughs> despite Baghdad Bob's protestations to the contrary, it didn't last very long, and the fourth largest army, standing army in the world, couldn't, couldn't stand up to us, and the American flag was waving over Baghdad. And then what? I questioned on the air many times in the early part of my, my radio career starting in 2007, all the way up to the last day I was on the air almost. The last day I was on the air, we didn't talk about it. But, but prior to that, we had, what are we doing? Okay, we, we got rid of Saddam Hussein. Now what? And we ran into that same loss of confidence and loss of mission. We had no clue what we were doing there and why. Is our entire job just to be here? Is it to nation build? Is it to protect 
whatever. And of course, we went through a whole series of events, surges, counterinsurgencies, ISIL, ISIS, none of which did anything to improve the confidence of the American people as to what we were doing. Now, I'm not talking about you, and I'm not talking about me. Well, I am talking about me. But, but in the broad spectrum of things, most Americans still don't know what our mission was there uh, after the fall of Saddam Hussein. And the perception at home becomes, well, I once had a boss that said to me, Dave, perception is reality. I don't know if I believe that or not, but I understood what he was trying to tell me at the time. But this time it was a little bit different than Vietnam, wasn't it? Instead of protests and people throwing their medals over the White House wall, instead of uh, people burning their draft cards because there weren't any, instead of the military not being able to recruit anybody, it was, it was sort of having the opposite effect. And it was almost as if the perception at home was, if you are a real American, you'll support the war and you'll go. You'll volunteer to go. And the people who don't support the war and the people who aren't real Americans... They're the ones who aren't, who aren't doing it. And then this became the mantra. Remember this? I support the troops, but not the war. And I used to say, say to people that would say that to me, what the hell does that mean? The troops are fighting the war. Today, where are we? Did we, did we sacrifice all those men, all those trillions of dollars and all that time? For what exactly again? Did we lose? Was our effort worth it? Then you get to Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan is a little bit different than Iraq, isn't it? Afghanistan, we had a reason to go in there. We were attacked by people that Afghanistan was hiding. What was the mission? Get Ben Laden. Didn't really have any other stated mission other than that. But along the way, what happened? Well, we knocked down the, the Afghanistani government, the Taliban. I don't know if we so much knocked them down as they ran away. It's possible, but I don't, I don't think we went in there with the absolute intent of that. I mean, we may have, but the reality of it is they, they, the Taliban don't have anything to stand up to us militarily speaking, but we're going to get bin Laden. And that was the mission in Afghanistan. And it turned into, and was, as days went by, as weeks went by, as months went by, as years went by, the mission of getting bin Laden became murky. We were losing confidence in this. How can this guy still be hiding somewhere in a freaking tunnel somewhere in Afghanistan, putting out videotapes and sending them? How the hell is this possible? And so, since we weren't getting him, we turned our attention to other things. Let's build a nation here in Afghanistan. And the home front perceptions of what was going on in Afghanistan kind of got subsumed into what was happening in Iraq, and it sort of got... Replaced. We weren't really paying as a home front. We weren't really paying a whole lot of attention to Afghanistan, except for that nagging bin Laden thing. And as losses mounted, 
people began to ask the question, we're there to kill one guy and we're losing a lot of people to do this. Why can't we find this guy? I think it's one of the it's one of the funnier moments of my radio career. We actually had people, three people, call my boss and complain because I recommended, I said on the air, had I been president on September 12th, 2001, if, if Dave had been president, I would have picked up the phone, called who's ever in charge in Afghanistan, and I would have said, here's the deal. You got 24 hours to, to turn bin Laden over to us. You can do it however you want. You can give them to the Russians to give to us. You can give them to the British to give to us. Don't care. But you got 24 hours and bin Laden better be in our hands. And if he's not, we're going we're gonna to nuke the area that he's in. Now, people get mad at me. Dave, you advocated for the use of nuclear weapons? Yes, I did. Ultimately, what would have been cheaper and cost less lives? Ultimately. And would have gotten rid of bin Laden a whole lot quicker. I mean, even if we didn't know, we could have said, yeah, he was in there. And when he didn't put out videotapes or radio broadcasts, we, we could be pretty sure of that. Got in a lot of trouble. I, well, I don't know trouble. I got a lot of people complaining about me. I can't believe you're serious about that. I can't believe that here we are at that time going into the 10th, 11th, 12th year of this thing, still not being able to find this clown. And as the losses mounted, as, as people got more and more frustrated with the fact that what is our mission here? Why are we spending trillions of dollars to rebuild Afghanistan when literally all we went in there to do was kill bin Laden? And today, today, as the Taliban resurges, the president of the United States sent 3,000 troops back to Afghanistan to help with the withdrawal, with the final withdrawal. So, if you take this to its logical conclusion, within the next few weeks, months, Afghanistan will be right back where it was 20 years ago, which is a jerkwater, backwater, third world, 10-plated, 10-pot of a country with human resources rich, as, as Humphrey Appleby once said, with the Taliban, a freaking lunatic religion in charge of it again. Well, there'll be no Bin Laden, but really, there you go. And as we contemplate this pullout, our government, Jen Paskey, says, well, I think before the Taliban does anything stupid, they'll want to think about where they are on the world stage. They want to think about where they want to be in the world, you know, in the world's perceptions. They don't care, Paskey. Circle back to this. They don't care. What they care about is, well, same thing they cared about 20 years ago. Blowing up Buddha statues and killing people that don't agree with them. And we're going to pull out, leaving a lot of our money, a lot of our friends, and a lot of our blood in that place. Well, but we accomplished our mission, right? We got bin Laden. Yeah, but not in Afghanistan. And so the question begins, did we lose? Was going into Afghanistan to get bin Laden worth it? Was it worth the cost? Was it worth the money? Was it worth the time? We have spent an entire generation. <laughs> 
there. Do you understand that? There are people fighting in Afghanistan for us today who were not born when 9-11 happened. Was it worth it? Hey, this is Whitey. And this is Hank. And you can listen to our podcast, Two Pine Talk, on all your favorite podcast sources. So come check it out where we talk about two beers and, and everything stuff. <laughs> listen to Two Pint Talk on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All of this has come to my thinking over the past week and a half. I've been, I've been thinking about this topic, this show, for a week and a half. I, okay, I didn't think about it while well, well, Cammy and I were on our little uh, getaway for our anniversary, but, but it was always there in the back of my mind. A couple of weeks ago, I read a piece by the Mill Serp writer that asked that very question. Did we lose? Was it worth it? Now, the Mill Serp writer, you need to understand this, Mike is a veteran who served Afghanistan and Iraq. He lost people there. He, he knows people who, who died in that war. He was a medic, as I understand, an air medic, as I understand it. And some of the pieces he's written about, some of the experiences he has there are absolutely heartbreaking. And he's wondering now as he watches what's happening with Afghanistan, was it worth it? I didn't serve in Iraq during the first Gulf War. I was in during the first Gulf War. I did not serve in Iraq. I did serve in Virginia, which I know sounds stupid, but there were things going on in other parts of the world that most people don't know about. One of the things that was going on was we were deeply concerned about Iraqis landing because apparently they had some submarines or small boats or something. And people were terrified that they were going to land on the beaches of the East Coast and blow up bridges and stuff. So there were a bunch of us who were organized into small groups, small squads, and we were tasked with defending the beaches of Virginia against a foreign invasion. I'm not making that up. It was the coldest, it was the coldest January in Virginia history, by the way, I think. It was so cold that I had a Russian fur hat, complete with Russian emblem on it, that I was wearing at one point. And the only thing anybody said to me was, where can I get one of those? I actually probably shouldn't admit this, but I guess the statute of limitations is up on this. Um, I robbed a Domino's truck at gunpoint, kind of. So we were in the dismal swamp near the beaches, guarding the beaches, and the road that went to the base went near us. And this was in the era before cell phones and pay, we had pagers, but cell phones and, and that sort of thing, I mean, internet, that didn't exist. Computers were just getting started. And the Domino's truck kept driving by us, and we hadn't been fed in like a day. I don't know what the heck was going on, but somehow or another, they forgot our patrol. They forgot our point, our little pillbox was, was out there, and they weren't giving us any food. So the Domino's truck was coming down the road, and I stepped out in the road and kind of put my hand on my holster. I didn't pull the gun out. I just put my hand on the holster and put my hand up, told the guy to stop. I said, what do you got? Well, I've got pepperoni, sausage. I said, okay, I'll take them. He said, you can't do that. I, you got you to gotta call in your order. I said, do you see any phones around here? 
And I just patted my, my holster. That's all I did. The guy handed them to me and said, okay, and turned around and sped off. About an hour later, the lieutenant came by. Did you guys hear anything about a Domino's truck getting robbed? No, sir. Would you like a slice of pizza? It's my war story for the first Gulf War. I didn't go to Iraq, but I knew people who did. I didn't personally know some of the people that were killed, but I knew of them. But my war, though I was involved with the first Iraqi war, my war is the Cold War. It's the coldest of all the wars. When I joined the Cold War, I enlisted in 1981, but by the time I got to the fleet, it was 1983. And according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the doomsday clock was three minutes to midnight. Now, you need to understand that during the, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was seven minutes to midnight. The, the Bulletin of American Scientists, the, the general feeling was we were closer to nuclear war, sorry, nuclear war with the Ruskies, toe-to-toe with the Ruskies, than we had ever been in history when I sat down in front of the fire control panel aboard USS Michigan. And while there were proxy wars, Korea, Vietnam, Nicaragua, wherever else you can think about, the Cold War hmm, officially had no actual shooting at each other. There was no actual shooting between the Russians and the Americans, officially. That said, I have no direct knowledge of any actual shooting between us. I've heard the rumors, I've heard the stories, just like you, but I have no direct knowledge of that. But officially, there was no actual shooting. But there were tragic, tragic losses. For my own service, the USS Thresher sunk in 1963 when it sank because, well, frankly, design flaws and lack of training. But the reason they had these design flaws and this lack of training was they were pushing so hard to get these submarines into service so that we could track Soviet ballistic missile submarines that we, well, as the NASA calls it, go fever. And we, we got going too fast and we didn't learn those lessons. A few years later, the USS Scorpion would be lost off the Azores, ostensibly after an operation where she was spying on Soviet ships. 99 men would go to their deaths. We don't know what happened to her. We have a lot of theories, a lot of ideas, but nobody actually knows. And anybody that might actually know <laughs> is dead, one way or the other. The K-129 was a Soviet ballistic missile submarine that disappeared in the Pacific Ocean in 1968, shortly, about six months before the Scorpion did. And no one knew what had happened. And in one of the most interesting Cold War stories there is, Project Amazon, the United States knew exactly where she was. We had been tracking her. We had sonar arrays on the bottom of the floor, seafloor. We knew where she was, but the Russians didn't. And we didn't tell them. And we sent the Glomar Explorer out a few years later, and we raised that thing, at least part of it anyway, depending on whose story you want to believe. Enough of it was raised 
that we videotaped a funeral for six Soviet sailors and gave that to the Russians later on, and we gave them the ship's bell that we had recovered in 1991 at the end of the Cold War. In the mid-1980s, the Soviets experienced the loss of the K-278. The K-278 was a unique submarine. It was, it was, it was, it was very deep diving, very fast. It, was, it had some unique properties, but it was, it was one of a kind. It was a one-off. And I don't want to tell you we were afraid of the Mike because we weren't, but we respected it because we understood that it had more capabilities than most of your average Russian submarines did. And near the surface, she caught fire. This can happen on a submarine. And while some of her crew managed to make it off before she sank in very deep water, they made it to the surface, but they weren't ready for the bad weather. And many of their crew was lost on the surface. There were many, many more accidents, incidents. There were incidents in Korea where the North Koreans jumped a, a U.S. officer and, and, and killed him while he was trying to cut down a tree. There, there, there have been shootings. There have been the South Korean ship that was sunk by the, Russians, or the North Korean submarine. There have been many, many, many shooting incidents that led to deaths and many more accidents and incidents because when you're trying to train for something, it can be very dangerous. Most of them are shrouded in mystery. Most of them we'll never know about. Certainly won't hear about them from me. But what I will tell you is I spent a good four years of my life sleeping on a hair trigger. I was the fire control supervisor, battle stations missile fire control supervisor aboard USS Michigan, the gold crew. And that meant that for that time period, for those four patrols that I was the battle stations missile supervisor, my finger was the one on the button. You know what they're talking, you know, when they say, well, somebody's got to push the button. That was me. Now, when you're 23 years old, it's a different feeling than, than when you're 58. Trust me. I wonder now how the hell I ever did that. I don't remember ever thinking that then, except for one really bad night. For the longest time, I had thought it was we, when Indira Gandhi was assassinated, but I was looking at getting ready for this. I was going back through the, the history of, of some things. And you will know that India and Pakistan, two atomic armed countries with missiles pointed at each other, who don't like each other, have a very long history of annoying each other to the point where they start shooting. And there has been a great deal of concern through the years that eventually they'll start throwing nukes at each other. And in the 1980s, when, when we were three minutes to midnight, because everybody was so stressed about things, India and Pakistan got into this tit-for-tat assassination game. Indira Gandhi was assassinated by Sikh rebel, rebels. And then a few years, two years later, 1986, I was asleep. I was sitting, I was sound asleep in my bed my rack, sorry, when I heard those words over the 1MC, the main announcing circuit, alert one, alert one. Now, alert one is a way of letting everyone on the crew know that we have received an er emergency action message. This is a message that requires something to happen. Now, 
depending on what the message is, anything can happen. It could be alert one, alert one, man battle stations missile for WSRT to alert one, alert one, dead silence, nothing else. If you happen to be accessing the, the circuit that the radio has between the con, you can follow that up. Maybe it's a communication, command communications exercise. Maybe it's a this, that, a. in this particular case, alert one, alert one, about a minute and a half later, the watch, the roving patrol watch came into my bunk room and I knew right then what it was. Pulled, knocked him a thing, babe, retarget and strike. Okay. I'm the targeting guy. So I got to get up. And this is theoretically, this is an exercise where we retarget a missile and pretend to launch it at a, at a retargeted target. It's not in our normal target package. I got the missile control center. Not that far away. I was in bunk room one. So literally had to come out of the bunk room, turn right, turn left, go up the stairs, ladder, turn right through the hatch, right into the door. And as I went through the door, they handed me the message and it said retarget and strike. And then it gave me a code. And there was something off about the message. Normally the message says across the top of it, Sierra, India, Mike, Uniform, Lima, Alpha, Tango, Echo which is alphanumeric for simulate. And that was not on the message. And I had read the news that earlier that day, we had copied the AFARTS broadcast, and I had read about the assassination of this, this general in India who had helped plan the retaliation for the attack on, for the assassination of uh, Indira Gandhi. In other words, two nuclear armed powers, once again, assassinating each other. And now here I'm standing here holding a message. It was probably seven or eight at night, I don't remember exactly, with a message telling me to retarget a missile and strike. And I don't think I'm giving anything away about, you can guess where the target was. And I remember very distinctly my stomach going cold. I remember very distinctly thinking to myself, Wow. They would, they really did it. We hadn't heard anything else. Everybody was really tense. Everybody was really quiet. And I headed over to the fire control panel and I started doing my procedures because that's what you do. You're trained to do it. And it couldn't have been two minutes later. Couldn't have been even that long. I doubt it was more than 40 seconds. The weapons officer walked in, Dave Fritch, Lieutenant Dave Fritch. And he had his copy of the message and he was just kind of chuckling about things. And he was very light, very easygoing, like, sir. <laughs> and he said, what, Bum, what's your problem? I said, is this real? And he looked at me like I was insane. Well, what had happened was the printer and radio was an old dot matrix printer and it had gotten slightly off centered. And the Sierra India Michael uniform Lima Alpha Tango Echo was on the next page. And I didn't get that page. And I remember going through that exercise and going to battle stations and simulating the launch and doing all the things that I should have done and we would have done and, and when we did. And then afterwards thinking to myself, I wonder if I'd have really done it. And if I had really done it, would it, would it have been worth it?
Along the way of my military career, I lost friends. I had shipmates who were killed in accidents, one who died of an illness. I knew people who committed suicide. In all of that, Chris was, I don't know. Chris wasn't my best friend, but we were good friends. He was similar to me in a lot of ways, except that he was married with two kids. He was an East Coast guy. I was West Coast guy. I was single, but we both had a passion for hockey. We were both peripherals guys. And he loved to run and I hated to run, which isn't true. I loved to run. I just didn't do it as well as everybody else did. So I pretended not to like it. And in the middle of the workups, we were practicing, we were getting ready because this asymmetrical warfare idea was starting to really become a thing in 89 and 90. This was, well, it was February 1990 and Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in August. So somebody knew something was up and we were starting to train for penetration exercise like I talked about before where the, the Iraqis were going to come land on our beach. We were starting to train for that months in advance of that. And that morning, Chris was supposed to be teaching some digital control computer stuff. It was February 4th. It was Valentine's Day, 1990. And he... Valentine's Day holiday <laughs> on February 4th, 2021. Sorry, Alexa's got to put her two cents in worth. Chris didn't show up to work that day because he decided to participate in the exercise. He didn't have to. He was, he was scheduled to teach. He, he was exempt. He didn't have to go to the exercise. But he wanted so much to be ready for this. He wanted so much to be a part of it that he went to the exercise. And in what can only be described as the clusterfuck of clusterfucks, Chris was killed in a stupid accident that should never have happened. But like Thresher and like others along the way, it's part of getting ready. It's part of learning. It's part of that steep learning curve that even though you're not in a shooting war, even though you're not really in combat, you're training like you are. We went to his funeral in Tom's River, New Jersey. And I was part of the flag team that held the flag that went over his coffin helped fold it. And it was in this, I guess the, I guess it's kind of like a mausoleum. I don't, I don't know, but it had this window that looked out over the, over the cemetery and the sun was dipping. It was February. So it was you know, mid afternoon and the sun was already kind of going down and the sunlight was filtering through this thing. And on the hill behind us was the fire team and the, the, the taps, the bugler. And we were standing inside and we were folding the flag and I was facing the family. I was facing Chris's mom. And what I remember most about that was when they handed her the flag. And I didn't do that, but Lieutenant Barnes did. God bless him. What an incredible, what an incredible officer he was. What a, when he handed her the flag and he saluted and they fired the first volley of the 21 gun salute mother looked like she had been shot in her, in her stomach. She just doubled over in pain, screaming. And you stand there because 
the respect dictates that you don't move. Snot running down your face, tears, the whole nine yards, but you don't move. Was it worth it? Was Chris's loss worth all of that effort for the Cold War and getting ready for the Persian Gulf War? Was losing the Thresher worth it? Was losing the Scorpion worth it? Was, would the Russians argue that 279 and 129, 278 and 129 were worth it? I used to think so. I used to say to myself, it was worth it. I used to have conversations in my head with the crew of the Thresher and the crew of the Scorpion and even with Chris to a lesser degree about it being worth it. It's strange to me to think today, that was 31 years ago, Chris's kids that were four and five years old, grown, married, gone. read an article talking about Americans. And as Afghanistan returns to the Taliban and we ask our question, was all that worth it? Is Iraq is just an absolute disaster? Was it worth it? Vietnam is our friendly now. Half the furniture in my house came from Vietnam. Tourists go back to Vietnam. Hell, veterans go back to Vietnam to, to see the places where they fought. Was it worth it? The Cold War is different, isn't it? The Cold War was a hard thing. Yeah, we didn't shoot at each other. But we were apart from our families. We were put in situations where could have very easily died. Was it worth it? And this article in Tablet Magazine talks about the fact that most Americans, many Americans, lots of Americans, have completely embraced the philosophy and ideology of my enemy, the communists, the socialists. They don't even know what Russia is. They don't even know what the Soviet Union is. Hell, they, they showed a poll that shows that Stalin has a, has a higher approval rating than Donald Trump did. So many today embrace that philosophy and ideology of my enemy that I'm stunned. Was it worth it to do what I did? Was it worth it to sit there with my finger on that panel and pretend to launch missiles? Was it worth it to train so hard, so difficult? Was it worth it, was it, worth it going to, to Damn Neck and teaching another generation of those, of those kids, another generation of me, to do that same job? Was it worth it? Every night, I tell my son, good night. And every night that I tell him that, I hope that it was worth it. I hope that this nation is not on a pathway of embracing the philosophy and ideology of communists, our mortal enemies. And I was thinking earlier that the only way we're going to do this, 
The only way we're going to change people's minds is by telling our story and our history. I'm talking about us, cold warriors. We're going to have to redo Studs Terkel's A Good War. We're going to have to talk about the Cold War and what it meant to defeat the Soviets, to defeat communism. There's a reason why we stood in our living rooms, which is where I was on that day, when the, when the Berlin Wall fell and we cried. There's a reason why when Boris Yeltsin was standing on that tank in front of the Kremlin, we were in awe. There's a reason why when Donald Trump stepped across that demilitarized zone line in Pyongyang or wherever the hell it is and shook hands with Kim Jong-un, we were amazed. We won. And yet, now, so many people embrace that philosophy. And it becomes a question of, do they understand it? Or do they even care? Do they even know what it is? Or is it just something that sounds good? And the only way we're going to change that is by retelling our story. A new good war story, as it were. A new oral history of the Cold War. And I try to pass that on to my son. He's not old enough to understand it all yet. He's starting to be. But he's not yet. And I've said this before, and I will say it again. The number one purpose of this show is so that my son has a record of me. So that when I'm gone... And he has a question. What would my dad have thought about something? He can look at it. Say, oh, this is what he would have thought. And every night I tell my son good night. I do it in a very special way. I tell him four things. I tell him that I love him. Ben, I love you. I usually kiss him on the head when I do that. I tell him I'm proud of you. And I am. My son does things that I didn't even dream of doing at 11 years old. I was talking to Cammy the other day. When I was 11 years old, my entire world was football. Entire world. That's all I did. My son's doing pre-calculus. It took me till I was 20 to start doing pre-calculus. I tell him the Dodgers are the greatest team ever. Okay. Maybe it's funny, maybe it isn't. But I want him to understand why I have such a passion for a team like the Dodgers. And then I tell him this. And it's what I end with, and it's what I want him to understand more than any of anything other than I love you and proud of you. If I could only have him understand one thing other than those two things, it would be this. I tell him, communism has failed every time it's been tried. And he repeats it back to me. Sometimes he says it for me. I say, I love you. I'm proud of you. And he says, the Dodgers are the greatest team ever. And communism has failed every time it's been tried. And if he learns that lesson, and if he carries that forward, and if he decides that that's true, and if he understands the truth of that, and the sacrifices that were made, then it will have all been worth it. If he doesn't understand that, and if others take that history away from us, well, someday we'll be asking that question, won't we? Was it all worth it? <laughs>